The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Friends, the culture clash is what we do on Tuesdays at this time, and uh, we've got a number of stories here that uh, do obviously deserve to uh, be debated, discussed, and uh, maybe deconstructed or analyzed to see where we're at as a culture. And uh, joining us yet again in the studio, Justin Troche, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. Good morning, Justin. Good morning. And the Reverend Joe Boot, senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel here in Toronto. Joe, good morning to you. Good morning, John. Morning, Justin. Good morning, Joe. All right, a little post-mortem. Uh, we haven't spoken since last Thursday's election, and uh, some people would say the... Uh, message was overwhelmingly sent that uh, Kathleen Wynne, especially in the GTA, I mean, it was universally uh, the progressive agenda. I mean, you saw liberal red blanketing the city in the GTA, uh, that really it's the death knell or the death rattle of physical conservatism, which was signaled by the overwhelming defeat of uh, Tim Hudak, because the other two parties are progressives. They're certainly left of center on the the political spectrum. can we draw from that? Is that an, an interpretation that you would make, Justin? Well, I think we tend to, as pundits, uh, exaggerate um, conclusions based on single elections and try to look for patterns that really only emerge after uh, decades of historical analysis. And I recall in 2011 when the Conservatives uh, federally went from minority to majority status, we were talking about uh, the spelling the death of, of liberalism. Um, and yet, uh, you know, that hasn't been the case. The federal liberals now appear to be in a good position to uh, to make a comeback in, in the election in 2015. If we look nationally uh, at the different provincial governments, we see, uh, I would say, a healthy mix of, of conservative and, and liberal governments. Certainly in the uh, two most populous provinces of Ontario and Quebec, we have liberal governments, but we also have a sort of right-of-center, quote-unquote, liberal government in British Columbia, progressive conservatives in Alberta. So if we just look at that context, historical and geographical, if you will, I think it's hard to make any any big conclusions. How about you, Joe? Well, I think, first of all, we have to remember that uh, 50% of the electorate didn't participate. And I think you would have to ask, uh, what does that demographic actually represent? Some certainly are just completely disillusioned with the process because they don't really think there's a real choice between... Uh, progressivism and so-called conservatism, Um, we have uh, uh, a context in which I think in this particular election the unions exerted enormous uh, influence and control over Mm -hmm. teachers and police and uh, the medical profession and so forth, Uh, I think in an unethical way where a lot of tax dollars were being spent. Um, uh, public money being spent on the on the support of the Liberal Party. I mean, Kathleen Wynne even thanked CBC for their support in her, in her on the on the night. I don't know whether you uh, noticed that, uh, <clears throat> but I think in general, uh, John, the, the issue is that uh, we cannot separate social conservatism and fiscal conservatism, and I think that's what we're learning right now. When you look at the major cities, mm. Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto, they are. The the urban centres are almost always overwhelmingly, or they're going overwhelmingly liberal. And uh, one of the things that the Conservatives have tried to do is is 
plant themselves in the middle by suggesting that you can be a fiscal conservative without being a social conservative. I don't think it's possible because fiscal conservatism is predicated on the success and strength of the family as an economic unit. We're in a situation now in Canada where one-person households make up more than 27% of all homes, a threefold increase on 1961 um, and uh, parents with children make up just 39.2% of families, um, and there's a rising proportion of those aren't married. Now, when you don't have a familial structure that is caring for children, raising family, and you have lots of people, as in urban centres, living on their own and very different makeup of households, they will invo- vote invariably for liberal big government because the, the state there is replacing the family and they don't have dependents so they, if they've got a social conscience they think well we've got to be but if I more may, familial a number of the writings the key writings that the conservatives lost back the liberals in this past election were in and around toronto so i think that these were people who might have been on board with the you know, the fiscal conservative side of, of what the PC party stood for, but they were still concerned that Tim Hudak and the party he ran was was ideologically extreme in terms of perhaps their, their social conservative Did you values. really think that even raised its head at any point? I don't remember. Right. Like I Kathleen think there were Wynn. memories from I the didn't last think, election. I didn't think Hudak. Oh, well, wait a minute. Now, when Kathleen Wynne in her acceptance speech, you know, in the euphoria, suggesting that this signals that Ontario is inclusive, it's all about diversity and blah, 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 and I... I said to myself, when did that ever come up as an issue? It was always economically driven. It was about the 100,000 jobs. You were either seeing a reduction in government as a good thing or you were seeing it as uh, going to lead to all kinds of... Uh, I'm not necessarily saying it, that there's truth to these the perception of, of, of Mr. Hudak, but certainly the attack ads that came towards the tail end of the campaign... And they were, uh, unfortunately, I suppose these attack ads were successful. Um, they did try to portray the party and its leader as being um, uncaring, unsympathetic to the, the plight of average Ontarians. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Joe. Well, when you've got a, a 52% of the provincial budget being spent on salaries and benefits, uh, you have a situation where, I mean, I think what Hudak tried to do, whether he got it right or not is another matter, is he tried to be upfront uh, and run a, a, an honest campaign about what he thought was necessary fiscally and talked about job creation on the other side of that. But, of course, that isn't going to play in a handout culture, which we're living in now. Well, yeah, and it scares people because of the 100,000 jobs that he said are positions he was going to reduce. That's uh, right. You've got a million one or a million two in the public sector and their families. They're wondering, is that me that's going to be so everybody then is working under this sort of Damocles and uh, so they were scared into voting liberals what you're saying to a large extent but on the other hand I mean Mike Harris also led political campaigns which talked a lot about fiscal prudence and yeah, reigning and spending and the message was different. Yeah, but in a sort of an ambiguous way. You're exactly. right, it was more ambiguous. Mm. It didn't specify 100,000. Suddenly that number smacked He tried to right. specify something with this in particular, but I don't, I don't think Hudak had socially conservative credentials at all, and I think right. the problem with the Conservatives today is precisely that, as in the UK, they're not conservative. And I think that the essential problem is not that... Uh, they need to, because the pundits now, of course, saying, oh, well, the Conservative Party needs to become more progressive. Let's continue to move the centre to the left. I think the only way to rebuild any sense of choice for the electorate is to actually establish um, a, a doctrinal, if you will, or an ideological conservative position. Well, now, see, there's a word that's toxic, uh, or at least it's been presented as being toxic, ideological. 
You're too strict or stringent in your position. Yeah. And when you're talking about social conservatism married to physical conservatism, they're all one and the same. They're inextricably linked. A lot of people say, well, what is so- social conservatives? Uh, they don't want gay marriage. They uh, don't want the uh, state involved in any aspect of people's lives. You know, I mean, it's all well and good to suggest the family unit, you know, is the best social program and it's the best, uh, I guess, guarantor of economic prosperity and so well, I still think there's a silent majority out there that uh, that, that doesn't support those uh, progressive uh, ideals. But m- many people feel frightened into uh, or pressed into silence on those things. Look, Margaret Thatcher, back in the late 70s when the unions had the country by the short and curlies, uh, and, the, and they weren't even burying the dead, managed to present, a, as a woman, a platform of conservatism that, uh, that swept all before it. And I think the, the, some of the sort of slightly insipid commentary that you hear from, uh, like with Hugh uh, to, uh, in, in the Hugh Globe Siegel. and Mail, yeah, uh, just presents the Canadians as though they have no convictions. I just don't think that's well, true. What he I'm was saying, I read that editorial, that and I think that it, was, that it had a lot of, of valid points, that we can't necessarily say that Canadians you know, uh, are rejecting any kind of conservatism, whether it's economic or fiscal conservatism or social conservatism. What we can say is they're rejecting American-style conservatism, a sort of angry, uh, narrow-minded, ideological um, focus on reducing government. He suggests that instead what Canadians seem to want is smart government, not big government or small government. And I think that there's some, there some validity, validity to that. But it's a bit to- of a straw man, though. This sort of Canadian insecurity about American conservatism, defining ourselves as not American. I think there's, there's, there's not a lot of credibility All right, but let me give you an There are certainly important differences, All right. though. All right, but let me give you an example. Here's social uh, conservatism meeting a progressive notion. Uh, nurses across Ontario want the feds to rescind their decision to take away health care coverage from refugees. Because right now, refugees get covered for vision, dental, supplemental health benefits, and the feds are taking that away because they would say, look, this is not something we can afford to do. Or uh, if you don't pay into the system, you don't qualify. But the progressives believe, in fact, in Toronto, you've got a motion recently passed at city council to make Toronto a sanctuary city. Don't ask, don't tell. If you're undocumented, nobody can approach you. With Physical conservatives and social conservatives, you know, agree that this is just madness, but the progressives think it's the right approach to take to show compassion and to be humane. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you see, this is what I'm saying. Uh, the, the issue isn't so much that policy or the, the policies that, that either government are, are promoting. It's the way in which they package it. Uh, the electorate wants to hear about the benefits of a proposal, not the costs. And I think the election got off to the wrong start for the conservatives because the first thing they talked about was this is going to cost us 100,000 jobs. All right, not well, how you, this is do, you believe then, do you believe all refugees should, without a question, be, uh, qualify for uh, free dental, free health, uh, free vision, all of these things? That people not, pay not without into? question. Well, I mean, not without question. They're refugee claimants. So therefore, while their, their claim is being uh, adjudicated, they get the free coverage. You believe that? I can't say that I would. I would hand that out if the budget wouldn't allow it. No, I mean we have to be. We have to be prudent. So you're right? creeping conservatism <laughs> there, creeping conservatism from Justin. I'm so gratified to hear that, John, this morning. Well, right. Justin, you see that he's he's having an. <laughs> well, I don't know why you conclude I would say anything else. I mean, I'm not just somebody who wants to throw money at solutions. I believe in looking at complex approaches yeah. to complex problems. Do you think Toronto should be a sanctuary city? 
I think if we can afford to do that, if that's the only way we we can provide for these individuals, then it's worth looking into. But I think there might be other ways to handle it. Yeah, I think that, again, you know, my position on this, John, is that we should be concerned about refugees and so forth. But uh, it was the church who historically cared for such people. We can't pay for that in an immigrant culture like Canada. You can't just be giving everyone handouts as soon as they arrive well, in the city. Maybe providing incentives for churches and other charitable organizations to do more. Maybe that's the way to do well, it. Well, they've already got tax-exempt status, and some people are upset by that. Listen, I want to talk, too, about <laughs> prostitution, the big story that's looming now that the uh, feds have come back with their proposed bill. We'll touch on that. Peter McKay, Justice Minister, labeling John's perverts. Is he right or wrong? It's a moral question. This is a culture clash, plain and simple. All right, let's talk prostitution. Now that I got your attention, again in studio, Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance, and the Reverend Joe Boot, senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto. By the way, we will be talking prostitution. Canada Talks, the latest installment, is prostitution tonight at 7 across the Chorus Radio Network, hosted by Jeff MacArthur. And not to steal any thunder here, but Peter McKay, Justice Minister, has called uh, the Johns who use the services of prostitutes perverts. Of course, their uh, new bill, the proposed Bill C-36, is targeting the Johns, the buyers of sex, as opposed to the sellers. And they believe that this is the way to dry up the market, Market, uh, I guess, part of uh, the so-called Nordic model. Is there uh, anything of merit to what he's saying when he labels these people as being perverts, Joe Boot? Well, uh, the question is uh, one of sexual morality. Right. Now, obviously, he's appealing to... Uh, in terms of our last discussion, uh, a social conservatism that has a, a Christian framework, that fornication would have been considered sexual perversion. And uh, so the sale of uh, and the buying and selling of, of sex, uh, which is usually uh, exploitative in terms of the operation of pimps, and in this country, uh, uh, although perhaps it's even younger globally, 14 is about the average age in which uh, a young woman enters prostitution. It's fundamentally exploitative. And uh, this is, from a, from a perspective of Christian morality, sexual perversion. So I don't think he's misapplied the, the term. That's not to say that every single person who uh, finds himself uh, desperate uh, for some form of sexual encounter is... A predator. Uh, there are people who find themselves in all manner of situations where they're in weakness, uh, find themselves uh, wanting to access uh, prostitutes. But it is sexual perversion. So I don't think the the label uh, pervert or perversion is inappropriate for those who are um, exploiting women in this way. Trying to stamp it out or being an abolitionist is that a right the right approach? I think that the I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect law on this. I think what people are what is trying to be accomplished is we don't want to drop the ball with what given what the Supreme Court has done. We cannot have no law with respect to prostitution. People don't want their next door neighbor's house being turned into a bawdy house. There has to be something in our, uh, our our culture that addresses the issue of exploitation. Prostitution is driven uh, by sex trafficking, which is a serious problem even here in Toronto. The traffic of women in very fr- from various parts of the world in through Toronto. So it's not a victimless crime. It's in not case. a victimless crime, All right, well, and it to... has to be addressed as a moral problem. All right, is it a moral problem, Justin? Well, I would say if it is a if, if prostitution is, as you've suggested, uh, Joe, if it is inherently exploitative, if it is uh, the case that, pro- that those who, who, who use these services are, are, are perverted, uh, then we should be looking at prohibiting the 
sale of sex outright, but that's not what the government's done. The law, as it existed on the books, did not make prostitution illegal. The current bill would not make prostitution illegal. And the problem is that while prostitution itself is not illegal, um, that takes it, I think, away from the domain where it's a crime or it's really a moral issue, and it puts it into a debate over the balance of harms. And so this law was, this bill was supposed to increase the safety for sex workers. Um, unfortunately, we hear from sex worker groups themselves that it does no such thing. It's based on the uh, flawed and failed Nord, so-called Nordic model, uh, which was actually essentially attempted by Vancouver police. They started to uh, pick on those who use the services, the, the Johns, rather than those who were, who were selling sex. And it didn't work in that case. It didn't lead to less violence against against uh, prostitutes. So if it's not going to be made illegal, then I do think we should look at perhaps going the route of uh, other countries like New Zealand, where it's actually legal, provided that the individual isn't being exploited, provided that obviously the individual is over 18 years old. How do you monitor all of that? Well, of course, as Joe said, and I agree, no, no law is perfect. The, the question is, on, on balance, which model is the right approach to minimize the exploitation, sure. the trafficking to, to make it easier for the police to monitor think, and regulate. I don't think the purpose of, of this law is to make things safe for, for prostitutes. You cannot make safe an inherently dangerous occupation. There is no making safe the buying and, uh, and uh, selling of sex. This is why this is trying to target, because we recognize that, that the, the age of entrance into this trade uh, is so young, and many of these women are on drugs, uh, they're alcohol abuse, they're, and they're being run by pimps, to target the law at those who would seek to access those services rather than simply rounding up and arresting prostitutes. It's better to... The, the, the law is trying to address those who are trying to access... What the law actually does community. is it targets the, those who try to communicate about sex, sure. which are frequently sex workers who want to set up safe places where they can do this, want to communicate safe sex practices. It makes all of that harder. It therefore forces sex workers to go to more, uh, more dark, more sort of... You know, poorly managed locations right. where they are because more prone to exploitation and sexual violence. They wouldn't be allowed to advertise, and right. uh, you're saying that would drive them underground and uh, put them in harm's but, way. But is sorry, John, isn't that part of the purpose of a law? Though the, the purpose of law is no no law about anything like this is is perfect or can completely stamp out a practice. Right. The point is, laws teach values. And when we attach a penalty to a particular law, it's teaching the value of that law. If I get pulled over by a traffic officer for doing 50 kilometers over the speed limit and get 10 years in prison, we'd say that's an unfair law. But if you, uh, if you rape somebody and it's a $50 fine, you would say, what's the problem with the values there? So law isn't just about, we recognize that all laws can't be enforced perfectly, but it does teach uh, laws actually teach a value system in our culture. And I think this is part of the point that is trying to be made here is that we have to value women, we have to value sex, and we have to protect uh, children in this case, very often in the uh, right, sex well, industry. I, I'm sure, I'm not sure uh, some days you feel like you're shoveling sand against the tide. But let me uh, sure. ask about another uh, system of values as well as uh, the moral component. Uh, and just to uh, give us a final whack at this one, the Pope uh, went on record yesterday denouncing those getting rich through speculation in financial markets, calling on them to use their investments for the good of humanity. You know, I put that before our friend Lou Skeezus this morning, the happy capitalist, and he says, you know, is the Vatican anyone to preach? You know, they've got the riches of Croesus, and they're looking after themselves uh, quite nicely. So does the Pope have uh, a legitimate... Uh, footing here insofar as suggesting, because we've had the stats come out, the wealthy are getting wealthier. And in Canada, it's reflective in the one percenters who control 13.3% of the wealth. 
he the Pope has uh, spoken out against what he calls the idolatry of money since late last year, and he says it's important that ethics once again play its part in the world of finance, and that the markets should, quote, serve the interests of peoples and the common good of humanity. Joe Boot, does the Pope say in this? I mean, does he have a, a legal or a moral leg to stand on here? Well, I think, you know, actually Scripture says that uh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So he's absolutely right to say that uh, the pursuit of wealth can become idolatrous. That's absolutely true. And we have to guard against it. But the you can't have um, people spreading around their investments if they aren't in the markets. <laughs> I mean, unless you're in the market, which involves some degree of speculation, you can't uh, uh, promote a culture of generosity, people sharing around the wealth. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Pope Francis is coming from South American context where he's been heavily influenced by what we call liberation theology, which is a Christianized form of Marxism. And I think some of his statements on this are overly weighted in that direction, and he doesn't seem to understand that we don't have a free market today. We have a state interventionist market. It's not a free market. It's a controlled market. Uh, and um, just look at the uh, Federal Reserve. It's neither federal nor is it a reserve, and it's in bed with the government. And so we find that actually a lot of the markets are not... F- so actually I think a lot of the problem with certain small percentage of people getting much wealthier where others get poorer is to do with the fact that the market isn't as free as it needs to be. That's my perspective on this. I think that um, there's too much control and influence of the state over the markets. At the same time... Uh, rules and regulations trying to govern markets uh, that are that are punitive in this sense isn't going to teach people morality. You can't have a, a just market without a sense of justice and morality in the culture, and that's to do with the collapse of the Christian faith in our time. All right. Well, you know, he's uh, indicting the wild speculation that happens, especially in commodities and food. You know, when you've got speculators, they drive up the price of these commodities, and food uh, is unattainable for a lot of people in the developing world, and he sees that being immoral. Justin Trotje, do you think there's something to that? He's targeting specifically. Now, let's really drill down on it, speculators in the commodities markets. Yeah, he's, he's focusing on a very particular sort of financial instrument. I, I'm not sure he's an authority in this area. Having said that, look, he's entitled, like anybody, to to have his opinion, to to, to put it out there. I do think, though, that when, when a spiritual leader um, does weigh into, well, any matter, whether it's spiritual, but certainly if it's sort of secular, economic, those sorts of things, um, he does open himself up to to counterattack. And I, I, I really don't want to see um, sort of Catholic leaders and the Vatican um, try to uh, try to put forward uh, arguments in areas really outside of their authority and then uh, uh, claim that they're they're immunized from being from being dealt a very harsh response from the hordes of critics that that that, that are going to come uh, uh, knocking on the Vatican's doors, especially given, as you pointed out, John, the hypocrisy of the Vatican being so wealthy, having a corrupt banking system and uh, and still trying to preach in areas where clearly from their own experience experience, they're not authorities to do so. I think the church should focus its attention, John, on tithing, as it historically did, and provided for people in Canada and the United States throughout the Depression. And if the church, uh, the Christian church, was uh, was tithing, it's 10% plus, then mm. there, would be, there would be provision there. Uh, you know, render to Caesar, Jesus says what belongs to Caesar, that's his tax dollars. 
and to God what belongs to God. When you give to God what belongs to him, Caesar gets smaller, he gets reduced, because he moves into all these areas where the church has moved out. Well, right, and conversely, when you've got the state increasingly putting confiscatory taxation on the backs of the people, there's nothing left to tithe. Precisely, and and uh, exactly. The, 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 state, the state is a harder taskmaster than God there. You're 10% <laughs> or 50%. <laughs> all right, the God versus the Godless. Let's leave it at that with the uh, Reverend Joe Boot, senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto, Justin Trache spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.